invite you to turn to Acts chapter 3 if you have a Bible. Let me catch you up or fill you in if you weren't here last week or if you're unfamiliar with the entirety of Acts chapter 3. I entitled last week's message, The Gospel Displayed Through a Cripple. As Peter and John were on their way to the temple and sitting there at one of the gates is a man that was lame from birth. Luke would tell us in Acts 4 that the guy was over 40. He never knew a day on his feet. And he wasn't expecting miracles. He just wanted alms. But Peter and John give him Jesus Christ. Healing comes to him and the lame is made well. The disability is taken away and the crippled is set free. And he's put back on his feet. And through this story, we see that Peter uses this opportunity to preach to the crowd about Jesus. And so I made the connection to the gospel that apart from Christ, we're like lame beggars only wanting alms. We cannot outside of the power of Jesus, will to do what we ought to do. And sadly enough, even for those of us who know Christ, sometimes we're content with alms, just enough to scrape by with doses of spirituality as opposed to being immersed in Jesus' spirit. So we catch up today literally in the middle of Peter's message to the gathered crowd. And Peter First said, why do you stare at us? Our power or our piety didn't heal this man. Jesus Christ did. And he, he then, Peter gets really personal and bold. And he says basically, you remember Jesus, God in the flesh, whom you killed, <laughs> whose death you desired over a murderer. That guy, he's the one who healed this man. And so that's kind of where Peter left the crowd hanging. Well, he didn't leave them hanging, but we're picking up probably in his next breath. (laughs) So um, if you would stand as we read Acts chapter 3, verses 17 through 26 this morning, if you're able to stand, I invite you to do so and hear the word of the Lord. Peter says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, yeah, <clears throat> whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let's pray. Father, you know the um, feelings of my heart of, of inadequacy or of not being prepared enough. 
to speak this word because your word is a holy thing. It's a weighty thing. I pray that your spirit would be speaking. I pray that you would open up the hearts and minds to hear these words. And help us to grow because of it. Help us to respond obediently to you. I pray against hard hearts, that nobody would have hard hearts against your word today, that you would soften them. And I pray that everybody would give you the freedom to have rule and reign in their hearts, mine especially. And I pray against the enemy, and I pray that he would have no say here. We ask and pray these things in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Peter talked about a turnaround that I made mention of last week. The very turnaround of the gospel we know is that we know we deserve what we deserve by God versus what He actually gives us. Romans 5.8 While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's grace. <laughs> In our very act of brazen sinning, our very hostile nature against God, our very contributions to the necessity of God becoming flesh and dying for us is met with a God who in turn does die for us and offers us forgiveness and life with that. You know, I think we Christians and I think people, me especially, at times have a tendency to view Christianity and, and thoughts and theology in Christianity as a list, a grade level. You know, at first we learn this, elementary doctrines, and then we learn this, middle school doctrines, and then junior high and high school doctrines. And I think some people view the knowledge and information in Christianity that just progresses and builds on one another. And I know I used to think that way, I used to view it that way, and there's a little bit of truth in that, that doctrine and teaching gets deeper and more advanced as we learn more and more and more. And hey, I got an A on this subject. I'm now moving to theology class too. But one thing that has been hammered in my head by many preachers now, and I find that I agree with, is, is this is how I would word it, that Christianity and understanding God is really a spiral. It's a hurricane, a tornado and so the wind and the rain and the debris that's spiraling all around all of theology, if you will, is the study of salvation, the study of end times, the study of church life, of missions, and whatever else, ology, <laughs> the study of whatever else. But at the center or the eye of the hurricane inside the vortex is the gospel. It's, it's justification. It's being made right before God through the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. And I believe that theology properly understood will boomerang or come back to or grow out of is always founded on what Jesus did at the cross. And I believe this because the biblical authors just can't get enough of it. The biblical authors, it seems, just can't shut up about Jesus on the cross for one page. The Old Testament opens with presenting the need for Christ and then the prophets, which Peter will talk to us about today, speak about the coming of the Christ. The gospel accounts will tell us about the life and ministry of the Christ. And the rest of the New Testament tells us about implications of what Christ has done and will do. Does that make sense? 
everything that you and I learn when it comes to beliefs or doctrines about Christianity, what the church hinges on, pivots on, is the gospel. It's how Peter is able to take the occurrence of the healing of a lame man outside the temple and beckon people to Jesus with that healing. And in the middle of this message here, he's in full force. He's expounding on the Messiah. And I've broken up this message into four capital letter I's since Christ crucified is that proverbial eye of the hurricane. So we hear about the, the ignorance of the Messiah. We hear an invitation to accept the Messiah. We learn about the instruction about the Messiah. And we end on who are the inheritors of the Messiah. Ignorance of, an invitation to, instruction about, and who the inheritors of the Messiah are. But we first hear about the ignorance of the Messiah here in verses 17 through 18. And to get a little bit more bearing, we're going to start back in verse 14 of Acts 3. Peter again, he says, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Ouch. You denied the holy and righteous one. That's messianic terms, the Messiah. He came to earth. You denied him. You rejected him. And then Peter says, you killed the author of life. That really deifies Jesus, the Messiah, as God. God is the author of life. So is Jesus. And it makes harsh, the harsh truth more clearer. You killed the author of life. You took the life from the author of life. But Peter says here, I know you acted in ignorance. You didn't know that he was God. You didn't know that he was the Messiah. Paul would concur with Peter's sentiments. 1 Corinthians 2.8, Paul says, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If the people really knew who Jesus was, they would not have crucified him if they knew Him to be the Savior, the Messiah. Well, why didn't Jerusalem, why didn't the Jews not know their own Messiah? Paul would state in a few verses back in 1 Corinthians that Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The Messiah is a heroic, kingly figure for the Jews at the time of Jesus. And every Jew basically has their blueprint in their mind of who the Messiah would be. He would be a warrior like David. He would sit on a throne. He would throw off foreign oppressors. And Jesus shows up and he's this humble, meek, homeless preacher that doesn't seem to care one bit about the Romans. That can't be the Messiah. And so they stumble over him. He even says the words and his followers start to call him the Messiah, but that can't be it. Where's the swords, the armor, the kingly general rhetoric and that charisma? That's not it. We want another one, please. The Messiah can be ignored by Gentiles 
That is, everyone who isn't Jewish because he's a folly. What does a convicted Jew who hung on a cross for talking too much and hated by his own people have to do with me? <laughs> Assuming that I have sins, why does the Jewish law convict me and why do I need a Jewish Savior and how is Jesus a Savior? It's all folly. So you can see Paul's words and Peter's words are still timely to this day. It's ironic. It shows the timelessness of the Word of God to this day. The Jews still stumble over Jesus. Messiah, nope, he doesn't fit the list. And to this day, Gentiles, most relevant Gentiles being Americans, it's folly. Old stories, dead Jews, sin is a relative term, it's all folly. Ignorance of the Messiah. For Peter's audience, though, they can't or they shouldn't ignore him. He says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer He thus fulfilled. Peter is addressing Jews at the temple. Jews who stumbled over Jesus because he didn't fit their resume of the Messiah. And Peter says the prophets bear witness. Everything they said about the Messiah, that the Messiah would do, Jesus fulfilled. It's estimated that Jesus fulfilled literally over 350 prophecies. Let that sink in. Over a period of 1,500 years or more, over 350 parameters were made for a certain person who wasn't even born yet. And I believe the last prophecy was 400 years or so yet to, of this man who had yet to be born. That's amazing. And we're talking very specific details. We're not talking about he will be human male. We're talking about being born of a virgin. That doesn't happen every day. I don't know if you know that. Born in Bethlehem crucified, pierced, and those prophecies were made even before crucifixion existed. No bones broken. Betrayed for 50 pieces of silver. Very specific, detailed prophecies. And Peter is saying, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. The prophets do bear witness. And we'll go into what prophets Peter talk about here in a few minutes. But after this first blow, you were ignorant of that you indeed murdered the long-awaited Messiah, Peter then extends the invitation to accept him anyways. Peter moves from the topic of ignorance of the Messiah to the invitation to accept him. In verse 19, he says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. We'll just stop right there for a minute. One must overcome the ignorance of the Messiah so that they can be invited to the Messiah. You know, it's one thing to be dead in our sins, and that's a big thing, but what is more at stake is missing out on what the Messiah offers positively. Some of us just want to be saved with fire insurance. But rather, we see in Peter's words positive results of repentance. In fact, Peter lays out three results of repentance. The forgiveness of sins, times of refreshing, and the rescinding of Christ. Resending of Christ. The forgiveness of sins, times of refreshing, and the resending of Christ. First, Peter says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. 
Now, take into consideration the sins that are the topic of discussion in Peter's sermon. What sins may be blotted out? The crowd sins, the murdering of the Messiah, that those sins may be blotted out. And so my point is, do you think your sins are bad? Did you murder God when he came to earth? Did you leave God for his own betrayal and death like Peter did? Peter knows a rich, boundless grace no matter the sins. And he sees what God did at the cross necessary to be forgiven. Peter, in fact, would write in his own epistle, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. See, Christ died, but he didn't die needlessly, and he didn't die without meaning, but he was completely righteous, completely spotless, completely blameless, so that he might, he might take our unrighteousness, our spots, and all the blame due to us for our own sins. And the way we receive that, says Peter back here in Acts, is repent. Turn aside from sin. Paul says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. So repent means to turn aside from sin, stop doing it. And we're not under condemnation when we come to Christ. We turn from sin to Christ. We turn from evil to Christ. And our sins are blotted out and erased. They have no bearing. They have no weight. They have no captivity on the soul for the one who has repented and turned to Christ. Sins have blotted out. Secondly, repentance, Peter says, it means that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. This is a direct happening from the Spirit's intervention in our lives. A few passages from Isaiah can illustrate this, but hear this one from me, with me from Isaiah 44. Isaiah writes, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, and I had to look this up, I never came across this. Jeshurun means the upright one, another term for Israel. But now, listen to this, times of refreshing. Verse 3, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will, call, will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Times of refreshing comes from the Lord when we give him our sin and when we yield to his spirit. And we say that he is our God, meaning that he is our sovereign, he is our savior, he is our hope, he is our life. We then flourish, we're refreshed and we're redeemed. We begin to live into that first design that we were made for. Life flourishing, connected to and in community with in the presence of the Lord. Because His very presence is in us through His Spirit. Does that make sense? Thirdly, it's interesting, but we know that repentance, Peter says, we should do this because then God, quote, may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. 
Peter firmly believes a last day of the Lord, a second coming, a final coming. And we can really see this connection between repentance and the final coming. See, Peter in his last letter, we looked at first Peter, but now we look at second Peter. And in the final chapter of that book, he's talking about the final coming. And he hits the nail on the head of many people of every generation. And we certainly hear it in our generation. And that's people who scoff. Jesus coming back. It's been 2000 years. When are you going to finally let go of your fairy tales, Kevin? But then look at this relevant to what Peter says here in his message to the Jews this day. Peter says in second Peter three, beginning with verse eight. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So the Lord doesn't see a thousand years as a long time. And he doesn't see a day as a short time because the Lord sees all of time. To him, George Washington and Kevin are as relevant to him as yesterday and today. And his end will come when his end is to come. But then look at these next two verses. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. In other words, the Lord isn't coming back to 2000 years is because he's slow. But rather, here's why. But is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Do you hear the Lord's desire in that? He wants scoffers to get saved. He wants the Jews who murdered him and are in front of Peter to get saved. But that doesn't mean he's not coming back. Peter instead warns, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Dan tells me that's how he knows global warming is real. No, just kidding. (laughs) The end of the world. Peter says the end of the world is going to come. So what do we do? Do we worry? Do we fret? Do we look for signs and wonders? No. Peter says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for, and an interesting word here, and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and the dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter sees repentance tied to the Lord's coming because he's patient, wanting everyone to come in lives of holiness and godliness coupled with waiting and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. The actual word there for hasten can mean to accelerate its coming or to earnestly desire its coming. It's interesting that Peter, though, sees a connection with our repentance and the Lord's coming. So, there has been and still is an ignorance of the Messiah. The Jews ignore that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. So they have been invited to accept the Messiah because we have been instructed about the Messiah. We pick it up in verse 21 again, and we read it with its entirety, though. Through verse 24, it says, Whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. 
And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. Here Peter elaborates on what he first said when he said that his audience had ignored the Messiah. He said then that God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And Peter says that all the prophets from Moses to Samuel and all those who came after him proclaimed these days. So the book of Deuteronomy in your Bibles records in large part some of the last words of Moses to Israel. And in Deuteronomy 18, we hear God say to the people through Moses, the promise of Jesus. Can you imagine? The people are gathered to hear Moses. And out of the words of Moses is mention of a prophet. And Moses and the people are probably both likely assuming that, oh, well, we'll see him in a few years then. But we hear, in Moses, we hear from Moses in Deuteronomy 18. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of my the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever does not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So it's interesting. We see in here that the people were afraid of God on the holy mountain. We remember God saying to not let anyone go up to the mountain except Moses or else they'll die. You know, I've met people who claim that they've had an encounter, a vision of God, a divine encounter. And I guess I take my cue from everyone in the Bible whether it be Moses at the burning bush or Isaiah in the temple or John on the island of Patmos. But though I love God, I personally could do without a divine encounter. <laughs> that would frighten me to no end. The Hebrews said likewise. Yeah, that's frightening. We don't want to hear his voice again from that mountain. And God said, no worries. I'm raising up a prophet like you, Moses, a person who speaks on my behalf. And it will be from Hebrews, the very Hebrews, the very family, the Jews. An Israelite. Jesus comes and he says, as John records for us, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who has sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. Peter says the Messiah, Jesus, is who Moses was talking about. Not just Moses, but all the prophets. I've covered this in many sermons, so I'm not going to go into it too deeply here. But the Bible is about what? Oh, okay, good. Well, now I know you listen. So, Samuel anointed, I'll pay you later. No, Samuel anointed David, and Jesus is the greater David. And a prophet after Samuel, a guy named Nathan, comes to David and tells him that coming from David's own family will be a ruler that rules forever. And we know that his name is Jesus. The prophets told the Jews about Jesus, which leads to our final point. Because Jesus is from the Jews, they are inheritors of the Messiah. Peter says, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. 
Before Jesus ascended, he gave the Great Commission. And Acts 1.8 records for us a progression. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And here Peter is in Jerusalem trying to save Jews, banking it on their prestige, on their blessed position to be the very people that the Messiah come from. As Paul would later say in Romans 9, he laments over the fact that many Jews are ignorant and do reject the Messiah. He laments, he says, they are Israelites, excuse me, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But let's not miss what Peter does. He points to a scripture that gets to the heart of Jewish salvation and Jewish pride. Jewish salvation in that Peter is saying, we're talking about what Father Abraham was blessed with here. We're talking about what he was promised and how it's been fulfilled. We read over in Genesis 12, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And so Jews know this. They got this down. Like they said, yes, we're in, we're, we're in our land, but it's been taken from us. And the Messiah is supposed to give us that land back. And that's. Jewish pride, that's ignoring everything that the prophet said about the ministry and the suffering of the Messiah. No, the promise is in this next verse, and it cuts to the heart of Jewish pride. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here it is, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families, <laughs> the Jews, but then the world, all the families. Why? Because salvation, because the Messiah, because the promise is not just for the Jews, but it's for the world from the Jews. And did you hear Peter's explanation of what bless is? We hear it again in verse 26. He says, God, having raised up his servant, that is Jesus, the Messiah, sent him to you, the Jews first, to bless you. How? By giving them their land back? Is that the blessing? No, by turning every one of you from your wickedness. That's the blessing. And what a blessing it is. Let's not overlook that blessing because better than the plot of land on the ground, better than a restored kingdom is salvation of the soul. It's one thing to get a plot of land, but it means something else if I'm torn and murdered from the inside out. But it's entirely another thing when God himself gives me the ability through his grace, power, and spirit to be saved from my wickedness. Amen? You hear that? That's the blessing that is to come to the Jews first, but then to Samaria and eventually of the world. And understandably, the Jews feel slighted. Not only did they ignore or miss the Messiah, but they stumble over the Messiah because A, he didn't restore physical Israel, and B, they have to share him with everyone. That's not fair. But that's exactly what Paul goes into in Romans 9. The very next verse that we stopped at in Romans 9, he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. 
And if you're very interested, you can read later because I don't want to give you a four-hour sermon today. But Paul would go on to explain that the promise to Abraham has always been Jesus and has always been for the world and not just for the Jews. So I know I taught you the Bible this morning. And you heard about the ignorance of the Messiah, the invitation to accept him, instruction about him and who the inheritors are of the Messiah. And you heard Bible verses and you heard interpretations and how to understand them. And maybe you're left wondering, so what is God saying to me today about my life? You want to know how what you've been taught becomes how do you get transformed? And friends, I want to suggest to us that like Peter's audience, even for those of us saved, we're in danger of ignoring the Messiah. Maybe we're saved, but then we have made God in our own image. And we've toned him down. He never calls us to do uncomfortable things conveniently. He never points out our sin. He never demands us to stop those things we call bad habits, though he calls them detestable sins and had to die for them. He never gets into our personal business. And we're really ignoring him because he's a stumbling block. Because if we let him be the Messiah in our life as he should be, others might ask questions and probe. Others might say, I've seen you given up that habit. Why is that? Because of Jesus? Like that makes any sense. (laughs) Are we ignoring the Messiah? Friends, I want to invite you today to accept Jesus not just as Savior, but also as Lord over your life today. I want you to invite you to go deeper with him. I want to invite you to the Messiah that doesn't wink at your sins that you minimize personally, but rather he died for them so that he can have you as his own. I invite you to that Messiah today. And I invite you, as Peter did, to be instructed about him, to be in his word, to be believing and implementing what you hear, just as the Jews had the entire Old Testament about Jesus before their eyes and they ignored him. So I pray that we, having both the Old and New Testaments in our lives, may we receive the word, as James encourages us, to be transformed by them. May we not look over them, but be instructed. Because, friends, we are inheritors of the Messiah. His death on the cross was for the Jew first, but then for the Gentile, says Paul. And so because of that, you and I are to be inheritors We get to inherit a kingdom with a king who takes away our wickedness. Amen? Let's pray. Father, the week I had personally, sometimes I so struggle with guilt and the condemnation that Paul says is taken away. And I want to live into that identity of being an inheritor of the kingdom. I want to know, and I believe I can know through Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross, that I can inherit your kingdom. And help me not to ignore you, Lord Jesus. Help me not to make you into my own image, to make you toned down and sugar-coated. And ironically and conveniently, I have you all figured out. But help me instead to submit to you and what you would say over my life. And help me not to presume that you should submit to me and what I think you should do. Father, help me to enjoy and to desire your instruction at all times, whether it be through a verse we memorize each and every day, through godly fellowship and conversation, through scripture reading and prayer. Help me to desire that instruction. 
Father, wherever we're at today, personally or spiritually, you know the heart of each and every person. And I pray that these would not be moments that slip through their fingers, that this was another opportunity for them to repent, to accept you as Lord and Savior, and they have missed it again. But rather, would your spirit and your grace move upon them in a way to where they know that the right thing to do is to accept you as Lord and Savior or is to repent of the sins they have currently obstructing them from you. Father, whatever it is, would you persuade them today to come to you? We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.